Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So good morning. Um, we're ready to start our annual event, the Pre-Davos Predictions. As I said, we have a distinguished panel. I'm going to introduce those uh, members shortly. But first, can I just thank Editorial Intelligence, the incomparable Julia Hotsbaum, networker supreme, not just on a British stage, but an international stage. Pi Capital, David Polo, thank you very much, and of course, the Financial Times. Um, I'm not going to offer any predictions. I'm just going to listen to the experts. I have one or two thoughts, perhaps, as a, at the end. Um, each of the panelists will speak for around three minutes, no longer, because we want to have plenty of questions and answers, hopefully answers, um, and then we'll throw it open to the audience. So first of all, um, can I introduce uh, at the far end Gillian Tett, assistant editor and columnist at the Financial Times. Well, if your, boss, if your boss tells you to speak, who am I to complain? I actually thought I was speaking last. So no, no, I've, I've decided to introduce a bit of tension in the... <laughs> okay, well, I regard this as a new form of career appraisal. There we go. Um, okay, well, since I wasn't expecting to speak first, I will simply offer up two somewhat unrelated themes that strike me looking at this year's Davos meeting. Um, firstly, when I looked at the programme... I was very struck by how little financial reform debate there actually is this year compared to the last few years. Um, basically, since, 2000, since 2007, finance has been a very central part of the programme, which I've noticed because I've been covering finance. But this year, it really is in a much lower place. To my mind, what this suggests is that the key challenges thrown up in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, to a certain degree, are ebbing away. Um, there's a certain degree of reform fatigue around things like Basel 23456, Dodd-Frank, etc. Um, and a lot of the original outrage and the hand-wringing and obsessive focus on finance has actually diminished. However, many of the fundamental problems remain unresolved within the financial system, I would argue, and I think that as the debate shifts away from the immediate aftermath of financial crisis, there's a growing focus on some of the bigger underlying structural issues in the global economy to do with the need for a rebalancing of the global economy, to do with the questions of inclusion, inclusive capitalism, to do with the question of how we actually go about creating growth that benefits enough people to keep them buying into the system. And I'm going to be chairing a panel next week looking very much at the question of how do you create growth that benefits enough people to feel that they still have buy-in in the system. The second big theme that I am personally fascinated by is the issue of trust. I think there's a very important shift going on right now within the Western world, but not just the Western world, in terms of the type of patterns of trust that exist within society. Um, broadly speaking, we're moving from a pattern of vertical trust, where the population was expected to trust government, politicians, experts, top bankers, etc., to a pattern of horizontal trust, 
where people are increasingly looking to their Facebook friends and other peer groups expressed through social media for forms of advice, leadership, and trust. Um, you can see that by the fact that most surveys of trust suggest that there's been a very dramatic decline in the level of confidence of most, in most of the pillars of modern society, be that banks, governments, company leaders, etc. Um, I've been working recently with the British Academy looking at a fascinating study showing this. Um, and again, the work of Edelman, the public relations group, shows that as well. And yet there is, however, the increasingly powerful force of social media, which is linking people in ways that many governments and many companies are very ill-prepared for. What that means in terms of how governments and companies address these fundamental economic challenges is still very, very unclear. But I do think that's going to be a central theme of Davos, whether you talk about it in terms of inclusive capitalism, which I know we're going to be touching on later on, whether you talk about it in terms of the environment, or whether you talk about it in terms of the many other social challenges we're facing today, or even financial reform and the level of popular frustration with financial reform. Um, so those are my two key, key themes, not entirely interrelated, but I hope that provides some way of framing the discussion that we're going to have later on. Thank you very much, Julian. Uh, next speaker will be Professor Ian Golden, who is the director of the Oxford Martin School at Oxford University. Thanks very much, uh, Lionel. I think the conversations will really be two separate ships passing in the night. The one is a conversation amongst now relatively bullish corporates uh, and people from emerging markets who are feeling that they've weathered the storms uh, and it's going to be a good ride from here for the next few years. And on the other, the people from the rich countries and particularly governments from the uh, old OECD who will feel that they've battened down the hatches uh, but the storm is getting stronger and they will be fretting uh, and talking about what to do. Of course, a lot of the wounds are self-inflicted because of some of the misplaced austerity and other policies, uh, but uh, they continue to bind. And uh, what we'll be seeing, I think, going forward in the next year is uh, European growth, which just bumps along the zero uh, floor, uh, zero to half a percent. UK, not far off that, maybe 0 0.7. Uh, the US, maybe a little bit up uh, above one and the emerging markets charging along at 5% on average. China, I think, will be 9% this year, which is higher than what others are saying. So two very different worlds and corporate uh, following that, while HMV and others are closing down. As you know, um, the overall position is, is much more comfortable for many corporates. Behind those two very different sorts of conversations uh, is a total absence of cohesion and joining up of the two, and, and Gillian's touched on some of this. So systemic risk, I think, will be the order of 2013, continuing to be the long tail, will wag more and more aggressively going forward, and that, I think, is absolutely endemic in the system. Because there's no joined up governance, uh, because there's no one with their hands at the global wheel, because the global institutions are totally unfit for 21st century purpose, the issues that are looming, financial instability, which continues to be as big a challenge as it has been in previous years, uh, climate change, uh, growing inequality, all of these issues will just bubble and bubble and explode in various places in terms of their impact. 
So that is not going to be a Davos conversation uh, because the governments are not yet willing to take it on and nor are the corporates able to. The old OECD is totally navel-gazing, looking at its own problems, trying to sort out its own houses, and also, of course, has fired all its silver bullets. Uh, so it has no resources and it has no intellectual capacity or bandwidth to tackle global problems. And uh, the new powers, the BRICS, uh, are not yet ready for it. So they will say this is not yet their responsibility for all sorts of reasons. So that joined-up conversation is not happening, uh, which means that those that have endured the crisis like a sick patient, and I think of the UK and Europe and the US and Japan as sick patients, a uh, little bit of life support, a little bit of medicine, keep going, but much less able to withstand new shocks that come, much more vulnerable as economies, and under-investing in the critical software and hardware of growth, the education, the research, the roads, the transport systems and things, therefore less able to grow in the future and have a very gloomy few years, I'm afraid. The emerging markets, much like a healthy, fit uh, uh, person, investing, getting fitter all the time, higher rates now of investment in infrastructure, education, research, and everything else in the hardware and software of growth than we have. So the future, and 2013 is the beginning uh, of this, is a continued divergence between the growth patterns between the rich and the old economies, uh, and therefore there will be uh, what a friend has called uh, convergence big time, uh, as they grow faster than we do, and they come up, catch up with us. However, a bottom 20 or so countries falling off at the bottom of that, and therefore global growing inequality, in growing inequality within and between countries. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Misplaced austerity. I suspect there might be one or two different opinions on that. Dynamic emerging markets, as opposed to risky ones. We'll come back to that, too. I'll try to provoke a conversation. Exactly. <laughs> Lynn, uh, Lynn Forrester, it's your turn to, to uh, offer your predictions, uh, CEO of EL Rothschild. Offer Lynn. my two minutes. I like the definition of two minutes. In two quality program. minutes. <laughs> two quality minutes. Um, well, as you know, the, the, the topic at Davos is resilient dynamism. I say about predictions is beware predictions. John Maynard Keynes wrote the economic consequences of the piece about how technology and trade was making the world such a great place two weeks before World War I broke out. So um, beware predictions, I would say. But in terms of topics that I do believe will be important, uh, not only at Davos, but I think around the world, I think the number one issue around the world is inequality, which um, is indeed part of the inclusive capitalism uh, agenda, but it is, it, is a, it is a pretty specific stain on developed and developing economies. In the, in the United States from 1979 to 2010, the top 1% grew by 275%, their percent of, of income. Uh, the next 19 grew by 65, the middle grew by 40%, and the lower grew by 18%. Um, you know, in London, the top, the top one, 10 percent of the population has 275 times the net worth of the lower 10 percent of the population. Same thing is happening uh, in China, um, where inequality is also growing. So I believe that inequality will be an enormous, an enormous issue that is not easily uh, 
corrected because to because by by a Gini coefficient analysis of inequality, Afghanistan is a better place than the United States. So uh, we don't want to do away with the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates's in order to have more equality, but I think it's an issue that's going to be really, really important. There does happen to be a pillar in Davos on it, which I think will be interesting. And I think part and parcel of that is, is the point actually Jillian has already made about trust. I think trust is an enormous issue for our society. Uh, in the United States in 1958, in a Pew study, 71% of Americans uh, always trusted, or almost always trusted, that group, uh, government to do the right thing. It's now 11% always or mostly trust government to do the right thing. In a poll last week in the United States, um, Congress polled below cockroaches. <laughs> it's a problem. So, <laughs> so I, I think that, that, that trust and inequality are two issues that we need to get serious about on an institutional level, but also on a, on a personal uh, level in all of our business careers. Thank you very much. Lynn. My two minutes. Terry Smith. Uh, Chief Executive Tullant Primon, and of course, uh, Chief Executive of Fundsmith. Thank you, Lyle. Um, I think the, uh, the safest prediction uh, that I can think of, and therefore the least interesting and possibly the least useful one, is that we will have uh, at Davos and, uh, and going forward after that in the year ahead uh, what a newspaper in its 2nd of January edition called Groundhog Year. Uh, which is nothing much will change. Uh, the, uh, you could predict in detail within that there might be some EU summits, for example, uh, which will resolve to do nothing. It, it took me a while to work out that was the whole idea, that the EU summits were... Uh, and therefore, we'll continue to have, a, in the sixth year of the economic and financial crisis that we've been living through, uh, something where the fundamental causes won't be uh, uh, addressed. Uh, I think that's a, a prediction that uh, not a bad one, actually. Uh, it wasn't my prediction. I'm just repeating the Financial Times one as it happens. Um, having said that, I thought, well, that's pretty dull, so I should say something more interesting than that. And then I thought to the last time I, was, I had the pleasure to be at one of these events where we were also asked to speak in this manner. And the thing that struck me afterwards, thinking back on that, was uh, uh, none of us did the safest thing on prediction, which, to, which was, to, I think, always to predict something that's already happened, uh, but just not let people spot it. And the thing I think we missed on that occasion was that the, uh, the events that triggered the so-called Arab Spring, which is definitely a, a big event, had occurred the month before. Uh, in Tunisia. Uh, and so I thought, well, is there anything similar I could alight upon here <laughs> that will change the course of events? And it's already happened, and I can pretend that actually I'm predicting something. And I would say it's the announcement by the major central banks uh, in terms of what they are intending to target. The Federal Reserve has said that it will continue its quantitative easing, which has roughly doubled uh, recently, at least until unemployment is below 6.5%. And I think the key words in that entire expression are at least. In other words, it will keep going beyond that in a recovery. Uh, the, uh, the Bank of Japan, under new leadership in Japan, is obviously being asked to target inflation. And uh, the incoming governor of the Bank of England, Mr. Carney, in what seems to me to be an unusual move in terms of job definition, has said that he'd like to target uh, nominal GDP uh, seven months before he took up the job, uh, which is interesting. Um, and of course, targeting nominal GDP is just another piece of polite fiction that people use generally for saying ignoring inflation, basically. So, um, With all that in mind, and I understand the counter arguments about we can't have inflation because of surplus capacity and the velocity of circulation and so on, 
my uh, experience is that uh, uh, inflation is a bit like the, uh, the character Kaiser Soze in the movie The Usual Suspects, uh, where you might recall that uh, at one point when this, uh, this apparently mythical uh, criminal mastermind is being discussed and nobody's sure who he is, uh, somebody points out that he's like the devil. The greatest trick he ever played was to persuade people that he doesn't exist. And inflation is that thing just when you think that there are all of the structural reasons why it can't reappear and people put more and more fuel on the bonfire is a moment when it reappears and usually, uh, in my experience, fails to stop at the very neat preordained level that you're targeting. Um, so I would say the worries about inflation would be uh, something that I think will occur in the year ahead. And I think it will exhibit itself in things like a rise in US bond yields. Um, and I think that commentators around uh, the world uh, will, for a while, say that that's a very positive thing, which is an interesting thing if you think about it. So the same people who've said you should buy equities, for example, because bond yields are low and falling, will tell you to buy equities because bond yields are rising. Uh, and so it will be regarded as a very positive thing for a while, as a sign of recovery, and then it might be regarded as something else. Thank you very much, Terry. Uh, our last speaker is Helena Morrissey, Chief Executive uh, of Newton investment management. Thanks, Lionel. Well, I was um, surprised but delighted to still be included on the panel after I'd rather tied my colours to the mast in an article in a rival publication, I'm afraid, about a week ago when I said I didn't think much would happen at Davos and was rather sceptical about it. And the reason I gave was really the, uh, the lack of accountability um, of those there, that if the decisions or I don't think really decisions are made even, but if um, those who are trying to influence things, you know, don't aren't held to account, don't really have skin in the game, if the decisions go wrong, then um, there's inevitably a sort of lack of follow through and um, a lack of influence. Um, I, it's, but I now realise that my, um, the opposite of reward, my punishment was to go last when everybody else has already given their predictions. Um, in my article, I had said I couldn't remember anything in the previous Davos, and then, of course, I remembered that Mrs. Moneypenny broke her arm last year. So I'm hoping that's not a repeat. Um, but the things that I agree with that the panel has already uh, said, um, a lack of joined up thinking, and I think that that point is very well made. This is the agenda, it's 81 pages, um, and it's a lot of very disparate um, attempts to address obviously what are key topics of the day, and I don't wish to sound cynical about the whole idea of attempting to solve uh, the world's problems, but I do think um, one needs to be more focused than sort of like just try and look at everything on the surface. I think um, there is a sort of sense as well of a possibility, and this is more of a real prediction, of a, of a misplaced uh, sigh of relief amongst the leaders assembled there. Um, again, Professor Golden has already used my analogy I was going to about the patient having been resuscitated in much of the Western world, but still being very sick. And I don't sense from the agenda, whether it be because of a lack of looking at financial reform, um, for example, uh, or really um, in a disagreement with, with Lynn that I think actually the Eurozone should be higher up the agenda. It's only four out of the 140 sessions. And I think that's sort of too early to sort of move off from that issue. So I think there's a, you know, there'll be a sense markers are very high, the fiscal cliff got um, averted, um, but no real addressing of the underlying problems and the disease is still very much um, in existence. On the, on the good points, um, because I do think there are some within the agenda. I think there are there is a lot of emphasis on it, on listening to young people. Gillian mentioned the move uh, away from, you know, on the trust side, a vertical um, 
model really and it being much more disparate horizontal uh, largely due to social media I think that that is also true uh, for authority I think authority is much harder to achieve in today's world through just saying it from a command and control point of view and also influence and I think listening to young people and the number of sessions that are in the agenda is a good thing there's also um, more uh, use the word sustainability in the uh, sessions and I think although as I'm, I'm accusing them of not really addressing the underlying issues particularly there is a sort of awareness now which is a step forward in the right direction that you need to be trying to build things that will work over the longer term and then related really to that point about how um, trust authority and influence have been uh, really changed as concept and how how they're achieved because of the use of the internet the networked world I think there, are, there is a good attempt to try to understand more about the impact of the digital world within the agenda. So although I don't necessarily, I don't change my view, that it's unlikely that there will be some sort of clear um, landmarks or marks that will follow, that will be able to say, at Davos, this is what changed. I do sense that there is a, an awareness amongst what are obviously still the sort of established leaders to listen to those who might be coming up. Okay, thank you very much. Before I throw this open to the floor, I think we should move beyond um, the Davos agenda as set by Professor Schwab, okay. and that this meeting should be a little bit more than a substitute for, for you having to put your ski jacket on and boots and imagine you're trudging through to the snow to these interminable meetings. Anyway. Uh, um, so I'm going to just ask a couple of concrete questions about 2013. The first would, to test, would be to test um, Mervyn King's uh, prediction, uh, if not last year, certainly towards the end of 2011, <laughs> that in terms of the Eurozone, it would, the Euro would survive, but the members of the club might change. And that was a very polite way of saying, you might see a breakup, but the Eurozone will survive. Now, do you think, starting with Gillian, that, it, that the Eurozone still has a risk of breakup, or do you think now the matter is settled after June, the June summit and the European Central Bank's promise of intervention? Personally speaking, I think in the short to medium term, the chance of anyone leaving the Eurozone has actually receded, because what's become clear is that the Eurozone leaders have a profound commitment to muddle through at all costs. And in particular, you know, the ability and determination of the ECB to keep buying time endlessly by doing ever more creative things, as Terry has already touched on, um, in terms of central banking, is very striking. I mean, the big unanswered question is that if the ECB is buying time for the Eurozone to get its act together, um, what are the Eurozone leaders actually going to do with that time? And it's still very unclear to me that the fundamental question about whether there is enough commitment to have a more significant quasi-federal structure, more fiscal union, and above all, more banking union, is actually going to occur fast enough before the market's patience runs out. But I think muddle through is going to be absolutely the theme again for 2013, um, sadly, as Terry says. Yeah, I, I think it will survive intact. Um, what's really happening is this is a pact of the devil. Uh, Germany needs a weak euro uh, desperately, 
Merkel's the smartest politician in Europe. She's the only one of the three that survived uh, over the 27th since the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, she can talk about lazy Greeks, but what she really means is, hooray, our industry, our exports needed, 60% of exports from Germany go to Europe, etc. <laughs> they need uh, Greece and Southern Europe in the Euro more than the Southern Europeans need to be in the Euro. Uh, and there's a lot in it uh, for the Southern European countries as long as they get big handouts. It's, not less, it's less clear why Greece would want to be in the Euro if it didn't get big handouts. So I think this will continue because I think it makes political sense for everyone, makes economic sense, uh, and it's very difficult to see why anyone want to exit at this point over the coming year. Pact with the devil. Good. Pact with the devil. The Kaiser Sozo Pact. That's a, <laughs> something out of the 18th century. Who mentioned that? Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> Uh, I believe that the euro does survive, and I believe it survives intact. I think there is political will for it. Um, and I think muddle through is probably correct, and it's going to be the case for the rest of the world as well. Uh, I, I, think, I think leadership is stepping up to do what's necessary in even some of the peripheral countries. I think Spain is trying to take some responsible action. and. Um, and certainly, if you look at the performance recently of the big European companies, their stock price is indicating that there's optimism, the Siemens and the Telefonicas and those, those companies. So there's optimism among investors that Europe or European industrial large companies will get their act a little bit more in order. Terry? Um, the problem with uh, Sir Mervyn King's prediction, I suspect, is not whether it's right or wrong, um, but the timing. Timing is usually a bit more difficult than uh, the direction of these things. I don't think that the, uh, the Eurozone will survive. Um, I hear a lot about political will and getting it to survive. I rather suspect money or logic might be more useful uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool than political will. Um, somebody has published a piece of research which is worth looking at about uh, currency unions either in history or uh, currency unions to compare with it, which some of you may have seen. And if you look at a series of uh, socioeconomic and political factors in a factor model to compare countries that have been in currency unions, or are now in one, uh, and, uh, and say, how compatible are they, and did they stick together? And it looks through history at things like the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the USSR, and it looks through countries which are not in a currency union, but are in uh, regions uh, where you can compare them, and they could conceivably be in it, like South America. Um, it also looks at a group of two groups, control groups of countries, which it had selected purely because you get the same number of countries as you get in the Eurozone. So it looks at all the countries in the world beginning with the letter M, uh, there are the same numbers there are in the Eurozone, and all the countries in the world that have their uh, capital within six degrees of the equator. So it's a pretty random grouping, and they can't find a grouping that's more disparate on these factors than the Eurozone. Thank you. And I haven't finished yet. Um. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> Which means, to echo some of the things that have been said, although I'm coming to the opposite conclusion, that if it is to persist, you have to accept absolutely indefinitely the sort of things that you're seeing at the moment, including transfer payments from uh, the, uh, the Northern European 
uh, rich countries to the southern European less competitive countries. And I think that's difficult to envisage because they don't have the kind of cohesion that we have in the currency union in the UK, uh, where even then you hear some uh, problems as a result of the transfer payments we make to the periphery. Okay. Helen, a quick answer. A quick on one the, is I, sorry, think I think it will survive, um, but it's surviving because of the pig-headedness of the politicians, not because it's um, as in their stubbornness and uh, commitment to the project. I think it's a huge um, a human cost of its surviving. Germany holds all the cards. It has everyone by the balls, basically. And it I'm sorry, this it. is a family Sorry. <laughs> What's a better way of saying that? Um, you know what I mean. Um, and I think, and it's by the proverbials? Is that Just kind testicular of grip. Um, but, you know, because no, everyone else is so damaged and weak, and yeah. this is exactly the opportunity that yeah. they want. But it is coming, you know, one of the Davos sessions is about preventing a lost generation, 14 million young people out of work in Europe. Yeah. Thank you very much. Gillian, you want to come in very quickly? I was going to very quickly say, I've, I've long thought the best way to so solve the Eurozone problem and Germany's current account surplus would be to create a giant club med in Greece and tell the German <laughs> pensioners that they could all have big vouchers paid for by the German government, which could only be spent in Greece. And essentially what you'd replicate is a snowbird phenomena in America um, and a kind of quasi-federalist economy where you have people doing what they're best suited for, but pulling together as a single economic area. But sadly, no one suggested it yet. Maybe Helen right. could suggest that. Okay. There are historic okay. tensions about large number of Germans going to Greece. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have happy German pensioners. Go well last time out. <laughs> happy German pensioners, happy German, happy Greek tourist industry. <laughs> which, which of course reminds me, Terry. I think you must have been the one who told me this particular story at the height of the eurozone crisis when Angela Merkel turns up at Athens airport, produces her passport, and they look at it, and they look at it very carefully and say, name, she says, Angela Merkel. Occupation, two days. Now, emerging, we need to elevate the standard of this discussion. Now. Now, emerging markets. Ian was very bullish about emerging markets. I'd like each member of the panel to identify, and by the way, the, nobody's been prepared for this, to identify the country that is most risky and the country that, where they put the most positive bets in the emerging markets. Take your pick. In the emerging markets. Am I still going Emerging first? markets. You're first. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. He's okay. <laughs> exactly. He is my boss. Um, two points. One, as someone who spent a number of years being a CDS geek, credit default swap geek, something I just love to do is look at the CDS spreads of emerging markets versus the supposedly grown-up Western countries right now. And there's been the most stunning inversion, which reflects an extraordinary inversion, not just of perceived political risk, I mean, places like Spain are now perceived as being much riskier than Mexico. Or you can find much more dramatic examples of the inversion that's occurred in the last five years. But also, I would argue, an inversion of moral authority. And the days when the emerging markets look to the Western world, not simply for guidance in terms of how to run their economies, but also as a central lodestar of what grown-up capitalism was, have gone. Unfortunately, we don't yet have an alternative, but there is a big shift, not just in terms of economic power, but moral authority right now in the world. In terms of which country is the riskiest, um, for my money, this is not necessarily, the, not, not necessarily the riskiest country right now, but the countries where the risk matters most in terms of the emerging market universe has to be China. Because if China wobbles, 
that's going to have big repercussions. China has done an extraordinarily impressive job thus far of keeping its economic strategy on track. The political tensions and pressures are building. Just to follow on from what Lynn said earlier, um, it's not simply the case that the Congress is rated lower than cockroaches in the US right now. If you ask American CEOs what they value in terms of who's actually managed the economic crisis well in recent years, they actually put the Chinese government higher than the Congress as well. That's American CEOs. So China has managed extraordinarily well in recent years. Whether it can carry on managing its economic and political tensions going forward, though, is going to be very uncertain and could have very big implications. And the positive bet you put on which country? Emerging markets. Um, positive bet for emerging market countries. Okay, over to Ian. Ian, Ian <laughs> I think. I, I put you, to be fair, I put you on the spot. Which I think, is, yeah, I think maybe, yeah. I think Indonesia's got a lot yeah. going for it right now. Okay, that's, thank you, Gillian. I, I appreciate that. Right, Ian, quick, um, and then we're going to open it up. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think Brazil's underpriced at the moment and uh, is extremely positive. It's gone through a rough patch through for a variety of reasons, but I think the fundamentals are fantastic. I'm extremely bullish on China. What always amuses me about the China conversation is this incredible concern that it might only grow at 7%. You know, no OECD economy has ever grown over a sustained period of time by more than 5%. This is unbelievable by any historical standard that it's grown at over 7% for 35 years. But you believe so, the statistics? So, yes, I do, actually, because I've seen the energy data and I've okay. seen the, the fundamental data that's behind it. And I've also seen the tower blocks in all the small cities. Uh, I think it's sustainable. I think the new leadership's got a grip on it, and I'm actually very bullish. Maybe it'll grow at 8%. That's not a disaster. <laughs> I'm most concerned about Russia. Um, I think that's an emerging market. Forget about being in the G8. That sort of has nukes and other things, and it's on our doorstep. Uh, Russia is a place of great concern. Uh, there's all sorts of issues on trust relationships, on the rule of law, uh, and also on the fundamentals uh, that are driving that economy. Okay, thanks, Ian. Lynn? Okay. I thought Jillian's point on a moral authority was, was very interesting. Another way, I think, to look at it is to think about the forms of capitalism. Is it state capitalism of China? Is it the entrepreneurial capitalism of Israel? Is it the development capitalism of Brazil? Is it the safety net capitalism of Europe? Is it the Anglo-American free market capitalism? And I think that, that that sort of creates a framework for where we believe, you know, capitalism should should kind of be formed to help us lead to, to the decision on where to invest. I mean, in getting specific, my most risky uh, was also Russia um, for various reasons from, from corruption to, um, well, mainly corruption. I think the most promising places in the world could very well be in Africa. Um, the, uh, the prospects there look very intriguing, certainly to us. Any Indonesia. particular country? Well, I think the, the Eastern, yeah. Kenya, Ethiopia, South Sudan, which okay. is interesting. Great. Terry? Uh, I share Gillian's concerns about China. Um, you can go through all the, uh, the problems of uh, uh, need to try and switch to a 
more of a consumption economy, <laughs> whether you believe the statistics and so on. Um, the, the factor that most sticks in my mind is uh, if you look at calculations of the level of capital investment to the GDP or the GDP growth, uh, and you look at that and compare it with episodes in history, it's beyond the scale at which problems became insuperable in places like Japan and Korea. Uh, episodes where you put more and more capital investment in to get lower and lower levels of growth never end well, in my experience. So I share that concern. Uh, where would I be most bullish about? Colombia, I think. Yeah. Uh, Colombia is uh, a country which was once, someone said, would be paradise if it wasn't for the drugs and the violence. Um, it looks like there's a reasonable prospect, at least, of an end to the violence with the, uh, the guerrillas, the FARC in particular, and other guerrillas um, with the government. It has oil. Um, I would go for Colombia. Thanks. Hello. Um, I'll do it in reverse. The uh, most money, I think, is the difference between where we're currently invested and where we're sort of looking at to go next. And uh, I think I mean, we invest very much on a sort of bottom-up basis, and we found some very interesting companies that are listed in the Singapore market. And um, so th th that's currently where we are, but are looking at Indonesia, really, because of the population dynamics there. Mm -hmm. Hard to find investable opportunities right now, but doing lots of visits. Um, you haven't had a quick word with Nat? Nat. Nat's yeah. got one for you. Nat's got one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one that anyway, yes. Uh, maybe so on. Um, on most risky, I just have to concur with the whole thoughts about China being the one that has the most influence on all the rest of the um, emerging markets and the developed world. Um, so I'm afraid that's not new. Great. Thank you very last. much. We're going to open it to, the, to questions now. Please, anybody like to put their hand up? Lee Danes, the Executive Director of Medsan Demand, Doctors of the World. Thank you for hosting us. Um, we understand that health will feature prominently on the agenda of Davos mm. uh, with the launch of a report on sustainable health systems. Uh, elsewhere, our Prime Minister is co-chairing a high-level panel to decide on the settlement for the world's poorest people when the current set of Millennium Development Goals expire in 2015 and many people are calling for a set of so-called sustainable development goals. I wonder what each of the panellists thinks is key to the success or d achievement of sustainable development from your perspectives for the world's poorest people. When, for example, uh, in Mali right now, we see that the development goals that we've achieved through our long-term health, resilience, and infrastructure building is set back by uh, natural disasters of in increasing okay, frequency got, and intensity yeah. and also conflict. Right, okay. Lynn and Ian, we won't do the whole panel because otherwise other people won't have time to speak. So, Lynn, do you want to take it, and then Ian? Now I feel like Jillian, I don't work for you. <laughs> You're not my boss. <laughs> I'll do it if you want. But I'll do what you say. Uh, <laughs> can I, can I? You're on my panel. <laughs> this is true, this is true. I will do, I will do as you say. Can I? You get used to it. Jillian wants to. I was going to buy Lynn a couple of moments and just quickly say one thing, which is that I think one of the key issues for Davos is going to be discussing who should actually be doing that kind of development work going forward. Because the old model of having you know, either states doing the development work or NGOs as minor players is breaking down. And things like the Gates Foundation are very much championing a new type of model and platform for addressing development issues. And so one of the good things about Davos, perhaps one might, one might say one of the few you know, clear benefits, is it does provide a platform for business and government and philanthropic groups to come together in a very meaningful way and try and perhaps rethink the best way for distributing those kinds of that aid and actually addressing the issues. Thanks, Julian. Um, Terry, and then <laughs> Thanks. Would, you, would you possibly care to? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the keys to it might be 
uh, Western Material. companies or, or developed world companies in the, in the way that they address these markets. Okay. I'm struck by uh, the Danish company Novo Nordisk, which is uh, the biggest producer of insulin in the world, probably the fastest growing disease, uh, probably the biggest disease uh, in, uh, in the Indian subcontinent now as well, um, who stratify countries into three categories from poorest to richest and, and also do the same with their products so that they sell their very basic insulins, uh, the, the natural humanly derived ones, to the, uh, the poorest countries at cost. Now, whereas their, their very best, the genetically modified insulin that they've just derived from the, the tail of the Gila monster, because it's got the longest digestive system on earth and therefore it's the longest lasting insulin, is sold at a very significant margin into the richest countries. I think, um, And I think that model is a bit like uh, the one that succeeded in the airline industry, where some people have, have deliberately set out to serve the unserved. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, people doing that may be one of the keys. All right. Um, Lynn. I could just Please. briefly say that I think that, first of all, for, for the Prime Minister to be leading that session, I think there is moral authority on the part of Britain <laughs> to be leading that. They're one of the few nations, particularly during this period of austerity, that kept development funding where it was. And I think that that's, that's extraordinary uh, and, and promising. But we also do live in a time when we probably have to think through uh, these grand goals of government, um, maternal health and eradicating poverty and, and look, we've brought 600 million people out of poverty since uh, 1980 through, through capitalism and through development. Most of those have been in India and China, but we have done it. So I think that the private sector uh, and public-private partnerships are a way we need to be thinking about that for the future. Thanks, Lynn. Ian? Yeah, um, I was in the in the kitchen in in 2000 when these things were developed, and I think in retrospect they've been the most astounding success. Uh, the establishment of common goalposts and uh, defining things uh, has bringing aid together has been remarkable. You know, aid has never been better spent than it is currently, and the developing countries have been never better to receive it in terms of their macro management, their budget management, and all the other things. So aid is more effective now than ever before, and the MDG sort of thing worked. That's what I think history will show. Now, there's lots of issues, there are lots of things left out, and the question is where do we go from here? One of the big developments is the new actors. It's incredibly positive news, but it does also lead to some reversal to where we were in the bad old 80s, where people put their flags on their pet projects and ministers spend their time in four-wheel drive cars driving foreign dignitaries and, and capitalists around who want to see their pet projects. So there has to be coordination. I believe that big goals are right. We need to ethically and otherwise mobilize around these things. Uh, but clearly, it's going to be a very different model. And we need to think about what's been left out. Clearly, there's a whole failed state question. You can only do government things if governments work. And we know that most poor people that are intractably poor are now in places where governments don't work. And then there's the responsibility of the middle-income countries. Over half the poorest people in the world now are in middle-income countries. Do we need to give them money? Why aren't they doing it? What can we do in other policies? And what the real lesson we've learned, I think, of the last 10 years is actually aid is only one piece of a much bigger pile puzzle, so co coherence. We build the hospitals in Malawi, we train the nurses, and then they come and work in our hospitals here. Incoherence between migration policy and aid policy, incoherence between trade policy. You know, the barriers are as high now as they were in 2000 to agricultural exports from developing countries. So that's a key thing, and the Doha round has been completely blocked. So that coherence is absolutely vital, and that's what I would place emphasis on going forward. Fine, thank you. I'm going to group the questions now. So gentlemen there, and then there's a couple of people here. Thanks. Um, I'm Chris we'll Perry. I run a forecasting company. Um, 
I just want to ask about Davos, actually, um, and I think probably my question is, what's the point? Is it a self-validation and sort of therapy exercise for the people who go there? And to just sort of jib uh, Voltaire a bit, if it didn't exist, would it be necessary to invent it? Um, actually, I'd love to add to that, and to Helena's point, is what accountability do you think people should have at Davos? But my question wasn't going to be that. My question was going to be, remuneration is, I don't know whether it is on the agenda, and to what extent is it going to be, how important is it, what needs to happen about remuneration in the view of the panel? Yeah, could you just say who you are? <laughs> oh, sorry, Jan Hall, JCA. Hi. I'm Anne Barnsdale. I look after global news audiences for the BBC. And there's been lots of fascinating and relevant topics talked about. But one of our challenges is in covering Davos, how do we, after a year of when the economy has dominated the news agenda, how do we make it relevant and interesting for audiences from an educated man living in the Kibera slum in Kenya to German and US businessmen and Indian middle-class housewives? Um, how would you, and Davos to them may seem like a very closed book, but the issues you're talking about are re very relevant. How much do you offer in terms of consultancy fees? Who's <laughs> <laughs> your expert? That's no, a question for you, Ron. Right. Who would like to start, uh, Ian? Um, let, let me, so we've got accountability, we've got how to cover this sprawling event, and it is sprawling. Um, and then the question of remuneration. You can take either one or... Let, we'll let me just quickly deal with Davos. You know, I'm, I'm going to be going for my 17th time, so I've seen it evolve over, over, over the years. And I think, um, yeah, there's sessions. A, a single meeting in a public audience never changes the world. And that, I mean, anyone that thinks that's going to happen, I think, is, is naive. So those are interesting places. I'm chairing a few sessions on inequality with great people, but that was not going to change the future of inequality. And none of those sessions were. What's really interesting, I think, in Davos is what happens in private meetings, uh, the, the sorts of either serendipitous or organized meetings that happen that are generally out of the public uh, gaze. And it happens there because it is still, and this is also asked the question, is it still useful and legitimate? As far as I'm aware, it's the by far the most significant meeting of business and government in the world still. Uh, that happens in the fringes of the annual meetings of the World Bank and the IMF, but in a much less organized way. It happens in some other odd places. But as far as I'm aware, that, and there's a smattering of civil society, although they're not big, significant enough in any sense to really be part of that conversation very often, and then I think they're accountable there either. But business and governments are accountable there. It's top-level people, and things happen in the governance meetings and others. So some things do happen in the fringes. Just give us one example of one big thing that you know happened as a result <laughs> of this networking. <laughs> I wasn't invited. Uh, no, I, I, I think, it, it, well, I know that there's been all sorts of things that have been incredibly useful for me, for example, uh, in different roles. I was there with President Mandela a number of times. I know we had absolutely key meetings uh, in private rooms with people. Uh, I, I, was, I was there with his, his successors. I was there with the World Bank. I know we had some meetings with a number of presidents and others around the world, and we agreed certain things that had been difficult to agree elsewhere. There's an atmosphere about it. There's an awareness from your civil service or from your, your whole corporate help desk uh, when you're a CEO that allows, I think, CEOs and senior people okay. in government to make right. decisions. I won't put you on the spot too much. Gillian? Um, for those of you who haven't seen Helena Morrissey's fantastic piece, um, sadly not in the FT, but in a rival paper, Hiss, um, it, it actually um, captures very well the issue about Davos, which is accountability. And it's the reason I started talking about horizontal versus vertical axes of trust. 
Um, the fundamental problem is that the people who meet in Davos were the people that societies and populations used to trust a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. But as people increasingly look to their Facebook friends, not to financial leaders, politicians, for sources of leadership, the question of Davos and its relevance becomes increasingly um, uncertain. I mean, to my mind, Davos as a news event always gets overtaken by short-term reactive stories of whatever the big geopolitical theme is of the day, be that the financial crisis, be it the Eurozone, I imagine the fiscal cliff this year may have quite a lot to do with things, um, and some of the other big sort of Middle Eastern flashpoints. Um, but what I find fascinating about Davos is it lays out very clearly some of the longer-term structural challenges that the world faces to do with climate change, to do with immigration, to do with inequality. And there is a real issue of governance today, which is that many of these longer-term fundamental questions, which are so crucial, um, are very hard indeed to capture in news terms in effective ways. They matter deeply to people's lives. But, you know, how you make climate change sexy when it's a kind of elliptical story that moves slowly rather than creates short-term quick flashpoints, except when there's Hurricane Sandy, is a real challenge. And Davos is trying to put that on the agenda, but in some ways it's a creature of its own environment in terms of the problems of making that sexy for a, new, for a wider audience. I'll just say one other point, which is that Someone recently pointed out that never before in human history have we been faced with a paradox that the world is undergoing some very, very radical technological changes right now on a scale of the Industrial Revolution, on a scale with the Agricultural Revolution. We've seen big breakpoints in history before in previous millennium, but never before has a society been able to undergo convulsive changes to analyse them and measure them brilliantly well and to track them we have so much data today about what's happening to us across the world, it's astonishing. And yet, it's also been so incapable of using that data to do anything intelligent in terms of addressing the fundamental challenges. And in a nutshell, what Davos is trying to do is simply highlight the data, highlight the trends, and try and provoke a debate. And sadly, it often fails. Thank you, Julie. Um, I'd like to take the remuneration question, um, if I may. I mean, I, I think um, I think it is an enormous question, probably a bigger question here than in the United States. But I mean, in the United States, again, just going back to the to the to the numbers, in 1970, an average CEO's compensation was 40 times the average worker. In 2010, it was 243 times the average worker. And I think what really bothers people is that many of those compensation packages go to people who, uh, who get the upside but never pay for the downside, whether it's through uh, banks that are too big to fail or too connected to fail, as some people say. Um, it's terribly, uh, terribly offensive. And I think that the solution to all of that has got to be more ac active investors because at some point um, shareholders have allowed all this to happen. The, um, you know, the, 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 it's like an escalator that you know, every CEO's gotta be in the top 25% and every compensation <coughs> committee uh, is, is managing toward that. I think that the solution comes from places like Ontario Teachers Fund. They take big positions in companies and they object to pay packages that they think are, are out of whack. So I think that we're going to have 
you know, CEOs overpaying themselves uh, until shareholders get more active, more involved, and uh, that these huge funds, instead of taking small positions all over, dig down deep and take larger positions in fewer companies. Thank you, Lynn. Terry? Yeah, just two points, one on Davos, one on the accountability remuneration one. Um, I'm actually not going to Davos this year, and I didn't go last year because I think it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> Uh, on uh, accountability, I'm not sure whom the attendees at Davos should be accountable to, their ski instructor, presumably. <laughs> on, uh, on remuneration, uh, the, um, I have a firm view that remuneration, to echo Lynn's point, I think, partly to her point, I think is a matter for owners. Uh, the people who own businesses are the people who should determine how the uh, people who run them are remunerated. Uh, obviously, sometimes that falls to people who are agents for the owners, people who manage money uh, to do that uh, particular task, but they should then, uh, that's where it should be. It's not, in my view, a matter for government or regulation or legislation. Uh, I'm at one with Ronald Reagan uh, on this, uh, not just in this area, but in almost every area of human endeavour. But, <laughs> but the most the most dangerous words in the English language, or uh, the most dangerous nine words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I'd like to point out there are actually 11 words in that expression. <laughs> but he's an American, so we'll forget. <laughs> he was never good American. with man. Um, okay, on um, accountability, obviously uh, you have to be accountable for something. That's all part of the definition. And I think one of the things I agree, understand that a single meeting can't change the world. But I do think it would be helpful to have some a series of actions or certain priorities uh, that are noted um, and that are reviewed the following year. I mean, it just seems to be how you'd measure any kind of other um, discussion um, or liberation. I have actually also voted with my feet. I've never been to Davos, so there you go, you I can say. Um, the um, point on, oh, actually, I did look ahead of coming today. I looked, I thought, okay, let's see what the output was from last year, you know, make sure that I'm not. And um, on the website, you know, there are, it says, oh, this wonderful cornucopia of intellectual powerhouse sort of thing. Um, did make you sort of want to go because it sounded sort of fabulous. But but then you had to wade through. They said, we haven't edited anything because you don't want to miss anything. So you can now wade through 260 videos of all the sessions, all the stuff. And I was saying, well, that just shows they didn't really distill it or say this is what's been really important this year. Um, on remuneration, I agree with the points. I think it is the buy side of which one I'm part of <laughs> to address that and to keep up the pressure and to make sure that there is alignment of interest and that um, it's also the quantum is correct and so forth. But I do think that it echoes a point that... Um, um, Gillian uh, started this whole session by making, which is that financial reform has sort of disappeared off the agenda too quickly. And again, I think, you know, the idea, well, now we've talked about, you know, electric fences and ring fencing and, you know, lots more regulation. Um, there's still a lot of unease, you know, the f fund management community generally would prefer the absolute separation of uh, investment banks and retail banks. Still a sense that we're just brewing up more troubles ahead because we'll just be managing these complex um, uh, delineation of different parts of an institution and too much regulation, too too complex a minefield. So I think it's come too, the, the broader topic has moved on too quickly, but the remuneration point should sit with the buy side. I wonder if I could just offer a couple of perspectives as someone who's gone off and on since 2000 uh, to Davos. Um, first of all, you will occasionally be present at a big news event. And the most striking one I can remember was when um, Prime Minister Erdogan had an incredible public bust-up with Shimon Peres of, mm, of Israel. Right. And you knew then that the Turkey-Israel relationship, which had been very close, was had fractured. So that was something concrete. Um, the second is, 
if you keep uh, this speed dating, which is what Ian's talking about, um, all these bilateral meetings, and the more important you are, the more speed dates you get. <laughs> Not necessarily quality speed dates, but there we are. Um, By definition, the, they're the, not the, quality. The, the, third, the, third, the third is that if you keep your eyes open, apart from seeing some famous people with, in fur hats, um, many of whom are on the floor because they haven't got the right shoes, they've <laughs> slipped. Um, you look around, you can see the advertising. That's interesting. So who is advertising? And I remember in 2008 seeing the Indian government's advertising, yeah. which was brash, and it was incredible India. And two years later, there were similar large ads, and the slogan had been changed to inclusive India. And to me, that, that, that was a, a recognition that the oligarchs and, and all the money, they'd lost their moral compass. And of course, we've seen we're seeing even more so the results in India today. And lastly, something more intangible, which is which crowd is the in crowd of the year? And I can remember the Russian oligarchs coming and having dinner with Khodorkovsky uh, and meeting some of the other oligarchs in 2001. And, and that was the first time I'd really seen these guys. And they were, they were, they were impressive. In a, in, a, in a rather daunting way. Uh, I won't go into more detail. Um, and I remember the Chinese, you know, and, and you'll see that. Every year there's an in-crowd. So what we, we'll have to look out for is who are the in-crowd in 2013. Don't know. Next question. Uh, yes, just one thing that, that, that's happened on Davos, which, which, oh, uh, which might reflect change. They've cancelled the big party there now. Uh, which used to be where you really saw all this happening. <laughs> yeah, okay. Lady in the front, and then I know there, there's one at the back there. My name is Deborah Unger. I'm from Transparency International, part of the civil society group that will be at Davos, but you say is too small. What could a civil society um, better presence at Davos bring, especially when you've highlighted areas like inequality, trust, moral authority? And are we just lip service there? And uh, what given that we don't have the economic clout, can we bring to the party? Hi, I'm uh, Alex Ellis. I work in the Foreign Office. Um, and thank you, Ian Golden, for two things. First of all, for explaining why Davos exists, which is to escape people like me from the government. <laughs> so in fact, I have helped, in a way, Terry Smith. Um, and uh, secondly, for uh, cheering me up during all this miserabilism, because I'm going to be our next ambassador to Brazil. So, I feel like <laughs> Congratulations. Um, my question was about... Um, uh, trust and inequality and the political manifestation of it uh, in 2013. Very interested to hear a bit more uh, about how this issue shows itself in politics or how it might show itself in 2013. I think a bit about the Eurozone um, because I used to work in Portugal and does it lead to so far it has not led to electorates rejecting governments which want to stay in the Eurozone Every time they've had a vote, they've stuck with what they have, um, basically, uh, whether in referenda or in national elections. There'll be an election in Italy in, in a couple of months' time, and that might continue to be the case or not, but I'm very interested to hear how you think these two issues will show themselves in politics in 2013. Yeah, David Brown, two very quick No, no, not two, one, one, one We have question. a very new breed of CEOs in the UK, particularly and globally, with, with, with people resigning and new people coming in. Do this new breed get it? Is there anything going to change, or is it just going to be same old, same old? Uh, so, my, so my question is a very simple one. 
I was struck when you were talking about emerging and uh, markets, places to put your money, places to be worried about. Uh, you all mentioned China as an emerging market, and it struck me that China has probably emerged. And so my question is, when has an emerging market emerged? And doesn't the fact that we're still talking about China as an emerging market actually okay. talk more about our attitudes? All right, thank you very much. And then I promise to come back to the next one later. So who would like to pick up on any of these? Uh, Terry? And um, then yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose on the China one, is it still an emerging market? It's a good point. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with, uh, uh, I suppose, the simplest way of saying it's emerged would be to say that um, it's the world's second largest economy. Um, however, it's still got 800 million people who are incredibly poor. Um, and if you look at the per capita GDP, you find it's definitely still an emerging market. Then I'll take the civil society at Davos um, question. And I was a global leader for tomorrow. That was a long time ago, as you can tell. <laughs> a young global leader, they call it, something like that. Um, that was my most active time uh, at Davos, so I haven't been as active. But I would actually say that the civil society groups should feel very good about Davos because it is a forum where your larger issues from health and the environment and sustainability are addressed. Um, and work that I've been doing for the last year is um, uh, with Dominic Barton from, from McKinsey, I co-chaired something called the Henry Jackson Initiative on Inclusive Capitalism. And our basic supposition is that, is that business is part of society and society is part of business. And we actually don't need to have these silos, that the results that you want, whatever your better health or better education or, you know, uh, a better society, a better planet, whatever it is, those are very much interests of the corporate world. And um, there are many instances of corporations that actually are doing the right thing in whatever your area of interest is. And I think that we need to get rid of this idea that corporations care only about money. I mean, it is what we read in the headlines because Editors only like to write about, you know, planes that crash, not planes that take <coughs> off. Thank sure. you, Lionel. <laughs> well, when, when planes crash, I, I, I mean, we should make light of these things, but I do remember when I was news editor looking over and the headline was um, <coughs> Concorde crashes, Air France shares fall 7% which wasn't quite the, or Air France, I think they put that first. The, the reverse. Yeah. The reverse. Anyway, carry on, please, Ian. Yeah, let me just pick up on the Europe and politics yeah. uh, and new breed of, of CEO questions. Um, I, I think it's true, and we saw it in the US election recently as well, that the center has held in some sense, but I think that's incredibly uh, unstable. And what we're really seeing is the rise of fractional extreme politics, uh, particularly on the right, across Europe. You look at the numbers, and they show the trends. Uh, and I think there's a real risk that we're going to see rising xenophobia, protectionism, and nationalism, and that is terrible for politics and it's terrible for the global economy and the economic growth. So I think there's a real risk, maybe won't manifest itself yet, but I think we will be seeing extremism on the right rise. Uh, on the new breed of uh, CEOs, I mean, I, I run a big group of people in Oxford thinking about the future, and one of the things that we're picking up is actually there's going to be a rapid aging of CEOs. Uh, as, with, as these dynamics. So the age of the, of the young leaders is gone. Uh, CEOs into their, into their desks well into their 70s going forward. And um, hopefully with that will come more wisdom, but we've yet to see that. 
Oh. Um, okay, Julian. Sorry. Um, no. I would briefly echo my boss's point, <laughs> of course, um, about the the value of Davos being the chance to smell the air, not so much the mountain air, but smell which way some of the underlying currents in the world debate are going. Um, I've personally found it very useful in terms of picking up on the debate about derivatives and complex finance in 2007. Um, picking up on the fears in the private equity industry about a backlash against private equity a couple of years later, et cetera, et cetera. You always do pick up some very interesting underlying themes. On that point, I'd come back to your question about what issues of trust mean for politics today. And um, one of the reasons why I keep talking about this shift away from vertical axes of trust to horizontal axes of trust is that they do have big implications both for companies and for governments. Um, Yes, it's true that thus far in places like Portugal we haven't seen electorate demanding an exit from the Eurozone. What you are seeing, though, in the opinion polls is, if not growing levels of extremism, although you are seeing that in some places, but increasing levels of down-and-out cynicism and disengagement from the mainstream forms of politics across the Eurozone, a loss of faith in the ability of the traditional forms of politics to actually do anything valuable. That creates not just cynicism, it creates a potential for great volatility. We've seen what social media flash mobs can do in the Middle, Middle Eastern area. You know, there, I wouldn't discount if the economic <coughs> pressures keep rising in the Eurozone, some version of flash mobs re-emerging across the Eurozone area. It creates a sense of vol volatility and skittishness and celebrity consumerist politics in places like America. You've seen that in the recent American debate. Why did we have so many extraordinary candidates in the Republican primaries? Partly because of this rise of consumerist, skittish politics, this kind of flash mobby kind of feel. Um, and that makes life pretty um, volatile. It also make, tends to create short-term agendas, and it also creates very big questions for companies as to how they deal with the potential for flash mobs and that shift of trust axes as well. Good. Um, Lynn just wants to say something about consumer celebrities in American politics. <laughs> <laughs> and we yes, didn't rehearse this. Indeed, my, my boss. Um, <laughs> Nothing to do with Donald no, Trump. No, I, I, exactly. exactly. Now, I just want to take a little different view, at least in America, on the uh, extremism. I think that the election definitely showed that the extremists are are declining in clout. In fact, the Coke organization has said publicly now that they don't want That's, the by the way, not Coca-Cola. Not Coca-Cola. David the Coke, spelt K-O-C-H, of right. the Midwest, billionaire. Thank you. He's, he's, he's one of the, yeah, Koch, I guess Koch. you would say here, but we call him David Koch. Koch. It is, he is called Coke, and he's one of the enormous <laughs> funders for the, the far-right agenda. Uh, his organization is called the uh, Americans for Prosperity. That's you'll see that. But they've come out publicly now and said that Congress should not use the debt limit yeah. as a bargain to reduce the deficit. Significant. Um, you know these crazy, insane people who ran for the Senate talking about legitimate rape and things. They were laughed out of 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 our our political system. I think that actually we are moving. <coughs> more to the center Great. in America. Okay. So, so, in the so quickly, in the Helena, and then um, we've got okay. time for three more questions, and then we're going to wrap up, because I so realize the, everybody's got work thanks, to do. Anna. On the new breed of CEO point, um, 
and I hope so. it doesn't sound parochial, but it's just an observation. I, I run the 30% Club, which is a business-led um, voluntary uh, group for change in uh, to see more women on corporate boards in the UK. And the members of the club are chairmen. And I've noticed a very sharp difference in the last three years, and it goes back to the sort of smell the air point, that from being this being perceived as a sort of political correctness, sort of special interest uh, thing among leadership, business leaders, um, it's now those same chairmen, many, I mean, there are 60 now supporters of that club, but there's a positive correlation between their appetite for that issue, um, more general diversity on their boards, more sustainable business practices. I can see how this has kind of like moved over three years from companies generally just focus on short-term profits to much more, and I don't think for political correct reasons, but actually they get it that you need to have much more sustainable returns, not least to attract investment. Right. Only other point I'd mention is on the Eurozone, and um, I think one of the reasons why the electorate has continued to keep existing parties in, um, all the same sort of flavour, has been the scaremongering about what will happen if there's a major change. And I, so I don't think they felt they had a choice. I do agree that there's more extremism emerging both on the left and the right in Europe. I think there's one other point to make on the electorate. Um, the electorates in the countries concerned, I think, are faced with the following. Uh, they are at the moment recipients of aid from the, the Eurozone in terms of uh, bailouts of their government debt and very big transfer payments under the Target 2 system, which they're not settling for the things that they're buying from Northern Europe. And they are, if you want to put it in human uh, individual terms, it's like somebody standing in front of you with a bag of money who keeps giving you money. I think you'd vote for him as long as he keeps giving you the money. <laughs> I think if the money stops coming, the electorate will change its opinion. <laughs> yeah, ECB, right. So we've got two in the front and then gentlemen. Start with the gentleman in the back. Nico McDonald of the Big Potatoes Manifesto. Uh, I used to work on Worldlink, which was the World, Inc., uh, the World Economic Forum journal that Euromoney co-published uh, and write for it. And uh, we... What's uh, your question? Sorry. My question is, <laughs> the editor Lance Noble started the first blog about Davos and yet it seems that Davos versus other doesn't do such a great job of actually fermenting global debate, even compared to something like TED and their videos. So how well is the forum actually creating debate? And this is to the BBC question right. earlier on. And how yeah. well is the UK and other media building on the debates at Davos? Right. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Henrietta Royal Fanshawe Halden and I sit on the 30% Club with Helena and support her. Um, and it's sort of in relation to that. Um, what is the direction of travel, do people think, in terms of talent management? Most companies are still hemorrhaging their female talent at middle level. We know that Davos decided to try and do something about this, I think, a couple of years ago, where it said you could have an extra place if you gave it to a woman, and almost universally, none of the companies took up their right. thing. Do, is it changing what's happening? Okay. Stefan Ramberson from Headhunters, Veni Partners. Um, I'm not sure whether it's a, a Davos topic, but it's a question I care about a lot. Um, what's the risk of the UK leaving the, exiting the EU? You've just stolen my last question. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, good. So let, let's take the talent management and the um, creating debate. Gillian, or who would like to come in? I, I think it's been done in a rather, I mean, that whole sort of bring a, a free woman sort of thing was a kind of like um, a bit of a, 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 a ill-judged sort of um, 
you know, attempt to slightly address the, the balance of people there, but I think it just showed that it, it, it is an issue. I think they've tried to do more in the past, actually, than this year's in terms of having debates. I know Sheryl Sandberg was quite vocal last year and so forth, but again, I feel they've moved on from some of these things too quickly, and there isn't very much about the people side. Um, so I think that is a gap. On the um, fermenting the global debate and carrying on the, the, uh, the discussion, I think the fact that we have started you know, several times in this discussion saying, well, what is the point of it and what happens next, sort of, I think answers that question that there is much more that could be done, whether it's in terms of a communique or some discussion. I know the whole point is just to kind of have intellectual debate, but to be seen as less self-indulgent, I think then there needs to be some lines in the sand. And lastly, on the UK exiting the EU, um, I didn't really get, when I was talking about um, Europe um, and sort of the German point um, expressed inelegantly. Um, I feel that the EU is just changing so much that actually the people who say, you know, it's wrong to have the discussion, we should just be uh, quiet. It, uh, uh, it would, that would be fine if Europe was static. It's changing a lot and it's going to move to a much more federated right. state. So that's, to me, I think, is a valid discussion. Could I just, just very gently exercise the chairman's prerogative here, um, which is to be an enlightened despot. Um, I'd just like to phrase the same question slightly differently. So could we just leave Europe alone and just deal with the talent management and creating debate? Yeah, I, the problem in, in achieving the goals that you set out with that is um, a wider one. Um, and uh, it, it was mentioned uh, earlier in terms of it fitting into the general subject of sustainability that people, people want to talk to you, uh, and, uh, and put down parameters for the number of percentage of women on boards. People also come and talk to you about sustainability or require you to report on things like carbon footprint and energy. I, I think one of the fears of, uh, of people who run businesses is that that's not really the agenda. And because it's interesting, I've never encountered anybody who wants to talk to us about sustainability who's ever asked us about R&D, product development, training, or any of those things. And th therefore, it's a worry that it's coming from a, a political, political agenda rather than a genuine desire to improve business. And that's where I think one of the obstacles is. Then? Um, on the talent management question, I really applaud what um, the 30% Club does. I think it's wonderful. I, at the same time, have I was on CNBC talking about women in boards in the early 80s, so it's kind of boring to me at this point. Um, I think it's I think it's uh, it, 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 it's it's ridiculous uh, in some ways. Um, I think that Sheryl Sandberg's book that's going to come out in March, which I'm sure will get a lot of coverage about leaning in, putting a, more responsibility on women to actually make the decision to go for it and to aim higher for the top instead of so often taking personal detours. That it's not some, some dis, it's not all about discrimination against women at the top. 50% of law schools are women, 50% of universities are women, 50% of entry women, middle level is about 50%. It's when you start getting up to the top. And so is that about discrimination or is that about self-selection by women deciding, you know what, I, I really would rather be home. Right. I, that, that's controversial. Okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> that. So thank you very much. Ian? Yeah, I, I just want to briefly compliment the, the points being made by making a point about uh, migration or immigration. The talent issue really has to be seen in a global context, and the talent pool is global. Uh, and in this, there's a fundamental improvement in the UK, for example's policies on this. It's very difficult to see us ever achieving the sorts of things we need to achieve. Yeah, agreed with that. Uh, the power of Davos, to put it in social anthropology terms, is that it shapes a discourse and it creates a discourse and it establishes what's 
acceptable to be discussed on the global agenda and what's not. And if you look back in recent years, that has changed. I mean, I was very struck at last year's Davos when I chaired a panel on corporate social responsibility and made a rather cynical comment that actually I couldn't imagine many Wall Street investors caring that much about CSR. And someone who runs Bloomberg Terminals came up to me afterwards and said, you're dead wrong. In fact, the fastest growing segment of the Bloomberg Terminal business at the moment is for pages on CSR amongst companies. Now, again, you can say that's a cynical attempt to simply fob off criticism. But if nothing else, it shows how expectations and the discourse is shifting at the moment. And companies within the current discourse cannot afford to ignore CSR as they might have done in 10, 20 years ago. And lastly, to come back to the Europe issue, am I allowed to say something on that well, or not yet? I was going to come in. Could I just ask the question for all okay. the panel? David Cameron is giving a speech tomorrow, uh, coincides with the 50th anniversary of the Elysee Treaty between France and Germany. Will he, it's a keynote speech on Europe, will he offer a, the promise of a referendum, the first in this country since 1975, on Europe? And second, will this buy him time and political space from his critics on the Eurosceptic right, whether in the Conservative Party or the UKIP? Well, I mean, coming back to the issue of the discourse, and I'll sort of make a nice yeah. neat segue, if you like, there. Um, you know, the discourse has changed very radically, and in the last six years since the financial crisis, we've woken up and discovered that things that were once considered unimaginable are now absolutely imaginable, whether it's large banks collapsing, whether it's the governments intervening in in the financial sector, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly, to pick up on the earlier point, as the nature of Europe changes, the idea of the UK taking a good hard look at the pros and cons has become very much um, part of the discourse. And I would say never say never in the current environment. Yeah. Yeah, well, Lord, Lord Boswell's here, who I think chairs the European Committee in the Lord, so he knows more better than we do. But. Um, uh, I, I think uh, there is a real risk that uh, the Prime Minister will be doing this. I, I fear it because I think we will be sleepwalking into a bad possible outcome. I think there are lots of other ways to renegotiate better terms in the EU and to work this through than a referendum. But I think it will, it's very likely to happen after the next election. <laughs> I would not be surprised if he does. Um, endorse the idea of a referendum and then it'll be very interesting political sledding between and among the sides uh, yeah, over the next two years. But I, th I think he will do it. Terry? Um, I'm no idea whether he will and I've no idea whether it will help him. Um, but I think he should. And the reason I think he should is there seems to be uh, uh, a sort of the way that the remarks and questions are phrased, there's a risk of this. We'll be sleepwalking into it. Uh, there seems to be a confluence of opinion that the EU has changed very significantly since we joined it in the 30 years since we joined it. And that means that half of the electorate have not had a say on whether we should be in this. And it has changed very significantly. And I'm a believer in democracy, so I think they should have an opportunity to decide. I don't think this decision should be made by our betters who know, know to how to make this decision better than the, uh, the common electorate. So yes, the EU is changing, changing quite rapidly, and so I think we should have a referendum to allow people to have their say, but also because we do need a new relationship, we, nothing is standing still. The question for me is the timing, because I think it's changing so quickly and the formation is still not clear. 
Certainly to have a referendum in the very short term would be wrong. If he calls for it, uh, it would be brave. Um, but I think uh, as long as it's not held very imminently, um, that and therefore the question is the right one. People always say it depends what's asked, doesn't it? Um, we need to know what we would be voting on. And at the moment, it's, it, it would be very unclear, I think. So I'd rather he didn't do a snap thing. But then I think it would buy him time. Good. Thank you very much indeed to the panel for um, putting up with me. Um, Thank you very much for coming. It's been a real pleasure.